Reverend Martin Luther King preaches a doctrine of nonviolent insistence upon the rights of the American Negro. What is your attitude towards this the, philosophy? The white man pays Reverend Martin Luther King, subsidizes Reverend Martin Luther King, so that Reverend Martin Luther King can continue to teach the Negroes to be defenseless. That's what you mean by nonviolent. Be defenseless. Be defenseless in the face of one of the most cruel uh, beasts that has ever taken the people into captivity. That's this American white man. And they have proved it throughout the country by the police dogs and the police clubs. A uh, hundred years ago, they used to put on a white sheet and use a bloodhound against Negroes. Today, they have taken off the white sheet and put on police uniforms. They've uh, traded in the bloodhounds for police dogs, and they're still doing the same thing. And just as Uncle Tom, back during slavery, used to keep the Negroes from resisting the bloodhound or resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to, to love their enemy or pray for those who use them despitefully. Today, uh, Martin Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same thing today to keep Negroes defenseless in the face of attack that Uncle Tom did on the plantation to keep those Negroes defenseless in the, in the face of the attacks of the Klan in that day. That there is probably what comes to mind when you hear the name Malcolm X. Malcolm X grew after that interview in 1963. In 1964, he'd be suspended and then ousted from the Nation of Islam, a group that Malcolm, perhaps more than anyone else, helped expand and bring to national prominence. Malcolm was suspended from the nation for 90 days for comments he made calling the recent assassination of John F. Kennedy a case of the chickens coming home to roost, meaning that America's climate of hate, both domestically and abroad, helped lead to the murder of its leader. At the end of the 90 days, Malcolm spoke to a reporter about his statement and the supposed progress that had been made that year in the civil rights struggle. I've been silent for the past 90 days because of uh, some statements I made concerning the president of the United States, uh, which were distorted. They were distorted. And, yes. And, what did you say, Malcolm? Well, I said the same thing that everybody says, that uh, his assassination was the result of the climate of hate. Only I, only, only I said the chickens came home to roost, and which means the same thing. Yeah. You did not say that you were glad the president was killed. No, that's what the press said. Uh -huh. What would I look like saying that I'm glad the president was killed? Malcolm, this is your first public statement in that 90-day period, is it not? First time I opened up my mouth in 90 days. That's why I'm talking so fast and so hearty. <laughs> <laughs> you, feel, uh, you feel, however, that uh, that we're making progress in, in this country no, and worldwide? No, no, no. I'm, I will never say that progress is being made if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. If you pull it all the way out, that's not progress. The progress is healing the wound that the blow, that the blow made. You have they no... won't even admit the knife is there. My name is Baudelaire, and today on The Soapbox, we're going to discuss the legacy of Malcolm X and how, like that of Martin Luther King, it has been conveniently painted a certain way. We're also going to discuss the political and economic philosophy Malcolm X would adopt before his death, black nationalism. What's that box for? It's my soapbox. If you have important things to say, you use a soapbox. If now isn't a good time for the truth, I don't see when we're going to get to it. I'm not getting any of people's cases. I'm nobody's fool. I'm on, I have that soapbox. Malcolm's suspension would never be lifted, and he was ousted from the nation of Islam. Malcolm's exit from the group received a ton of press, but basically, Malcolm felt his exit was an excuse to remove him from the group, as its leader, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, 
felt Malcolm knew too much about his relationships with his former secretaries, in which Elijah Muhammad fathered multiple children that were at the time unknown to the public. The nation claims Malcolm's suspension and exit were the fault of his comments about the president and general insubordination. After leaving the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X decided that he would finally go on his Hajj and learn more about Orthodox Islam. The Hajj is a trip to the holy city of Mecca that it is the duty of all Muslims who are able to make at least once in their lifetime. Malcolm, after his trip to Mecca, also traveled throughout Africa. During his travels, Malcolm was removed from the American climate both politically and socially, and he began to gain a new perspective on the American race issue and believed that the problem could be solved and that not all whites were devils, as had been previously taught by his teacher, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. He did, however, believe that America's race issue was so deeply rooted that it would take an immense amount of work on both the parts of the conscious blacks and whites to do away with. After his return to the States, Malcolm would go on national TV and speak about his political and social maturity. Black Muslims uh, have sometimes, whether you have or not, and I think probably you have, have sometimes, it seemed to me, been preaching hate to meet hate. Uh, I don't advocate any kind of hate. There's a lot that, of talk that sounds very much like it. No, I think that the guilt complex of the American white man is so profound until when you begin to analyze the real condition of the black man in America, instead of the American white man eliminating the causes that create that condition, he tries to cover it up by accusing his accusers of teaching hate. But actually, they're just exposing him for being responsible for what exists. Well, that's, that's uh, something of, of an argument, but I've heard speeches made by some of the people of your group. I think I've heard you make speeches. It seemed to me that you were advocating uh, what I would have to describe, I think, as violence to meet the serious injuries that have been done your people, with which I totally agree. I don't call that violence. Uh, I don't in any way encourage black people to go out and initiate acts of aggression indiscriminately against whites. But I do believe that the black man in the United States and any human being anywhere is well within his right to do whatever is necessary by any means necessary to protect his life and property, especially in a, in a country where the federal government itself has proven that it is either uh, in, unable or unwilling to protect the lives and property of those human beings. Malcolm would take what he learned during his travels and bring it all back to the United States, where he founded a group called the Organization of Afro-American Unity, meant to be a relative of the Organization of African Unity, which was a group of most of the independent nations of Africa. Once the fight for civil rights was transformed into a global fight for human rights, Malcolm believed, then Uncle Sam's hypocrisy would be exposed for all to see. Not only is he a crook, he's a hypocrite. Here he is standing up in front of other people, Uncle Sam, with the blood of your and my mothers and fathers on his hands, with the blood dripping down his jaws like a bloody-jawed wolf, and still got the nerve to point his finger at other countries. You can't even get civil rights legislation. And this man has got the nerve to stand up and talk about South Africa, or talk about Nazi Germany, or talk about Portia. No, no more days like those. Clips like that may sound similar to what you think of when you hear Malcolm X now, but understand that Malcolm's passion for his people and their betterment was always his fuel for his work. A stigma Malcolm fought ferociously when he returned was that he was a black extremist. The mere idea 
of being called a black extremist was laughable to the Muslim minister. You make my point. <laughs> that as long as a white man does it, it's all right. A black man is supposed to have no feelings. But when a black man strikes back, he's an extremist. He's supposed to sit passively and have no feelings, be nonviolent, and love his enemy. No matter what kind of attack, be it verbal or otherwise, he's supposed to take it. But if he stands up and in any way tries to defend himself, <laughs> then he's an extremist. Malcolm's personal and political philosophy would be black nationalism, which is the belief that blacks should own the businesses in the communities they live and control the politicians in that community. My personal political philosophy, black nationalism, which means that the black man should control the politics of his own community and control the politicians who are in his own community. My personal economic philosophy is uh, also black nationalism, which means that the black man should have a hand in controlling the economy of the so-called Negro community he should be developing the type of knowledge that will enable him to own and operate the businesses and thereby be able to create employment for his own people, for his own kind. And the uh, social philosophy also is black nationalism, which means that instead of the black man trying to force himself into the society of the white man, we should be trying to eliminate from our own society the ills and the, the defects and make ourselves uh, likable and sociable among our, among our own kind. What you may be asking yourself is, how is black nationalism different from white nationalism? Well, white nationalism, especially in a country as historically white as ours, is built on the preservation of a white supremacist ideology that is embedded in our society and is perceived to be, by white nationalists, currently shifting in a direction that will impurify their nation. Black nationalism has nothing to do with other races. Rather, black nationalism is the belief that the black community is perfectly capable of doing what has been done by other races, which is a national and international cultural solidarity. Black nationalism isn't anti-white, but it is pro-black. The focus of today's episode will be Malcolm X's speech, The Ballot or the Bullet, where Malcolm breaks down black nationalism on two fronts, political and economic. The name Ballot or the Bullet is a reference to the severity of the issue at hand, black political and economic maturity. Some may be thrown off by names such as Ballad of the Bullet, but I would say to those people, get your head out of the sand and understand what is happening in your communities. Just this morning, I read a story about Breonna Taylor, an EMT worker in Louisville, Kentucky, who was murdered by three police officers in her own apartment. Her own apartment. The cops stormed into her apartment and Breonna's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, a legal firearm carrier, shot back at what he believed were invaders into his home. The cops were in plain clothes and Kenneth says did not announce that they were police. The cops claim, of course, that they did. And along with murdering Brianna, they arrested Kenneth Walker for assault and attempted murder of a police officer. The cops claim this was all a part of a drug raid and that they went into the wrong house. Now, when I tell you Kenneth and his girlfriend had no prior record, tell me what else was Kenneth to do? And in what other community does this happen? As black people, it is time we band together under a similar flag such as black nationalism that doesn't take into account everything that divides us, like religion, geographic location, and political party affiliation. But speaking of politics, that's where Malcolm starts in his speech. The political philosophy of black nationalism only means that the black man should control the politics and the politicians in his own community. The, the, time, the time when white people can come in our community 
and get us to vote for them so that they can be our political leaders and tell us what to do and what not to do is long gone. By the same token, the time when that same white man, knowing that your eyes are too far open, can send another Negro into the community, get you and me to support him so he can use him to lead us astray, those days are long gone. The political philosophy of black nationalism only means that if you and I are going to live in a black community, and that's where we're going to live, because as soon as you move into one of their, com as soon as you move out of the black community into their community, it's mixed for a period of time, but they are gone, and you're right there all by yourself. We must, we must understand the politics of our community, and we must know what politics is supposed to produce. We must know what part politics play in our lives. And until we become politically mature, we will always be misled, led astray, or deceived or maneuvered into uh, supporting someone politically who doesn't have the good of our community at heart. So the political philosophy of black nationalism only means that we will have to carry on a program, a political program of re-education to open our people's eyes, make us become more politically conscious, politically mature. And then we will, whenever we get ready to cast our ballot, that ballot will be, classed for, uh, will be cast for a man of the community who has the good of the community at heart. And that political maturity still hasn't happened as blacks today are still the pawns of the Democratic Party, which has sent politicians into our communities for years now showing off their liberalism by partaking in black activities or showing how much they love black music, but never providing any tangible gains for the community after their time is up in office. Blacks have also yet to gain the political maturity to approach the other party with real demands that may lead to a switch in allegiances, at least temporarily. The Republican Party also has refused to lose touch with a very politically active and racist base in favor of a black vote, that they haven't gained in over half a century. But there should be no allegiances to either party when it comes to the black community. Rather, we should use our powerful political position to get exactly what it is that we want and refuse to vote when and where our needs are not met. Malcolm spoke to the foolishness of overcommitting to one party, especially when that one party doesn't deliver on its promises. In the Senate, there are 67 uh, Democrats. Only 33 are Republicans. The party that you bash controls two-thirds of the House of Representatives and the Senate, and still they can't keep their promise to you, because you're a chump. <laughs> Anytime you throw your weight behind a political party that controls two-thirds of the government, and that party can't keep the promise that it made to you during election time, and you are dumb enough to walk around continuing to identify yourself with that party, you are not only a chump, but you're a traitor to your race. In every election since 1980, the Democrats have won the black vote by a large margin. Where the Republicans won is mostly from black voters deciding not to vote in that election. For example, in the 2016 election, black voter turnout decreased for the first time in 20 years. Though Clinton won the popular vote, she did lose the electoral, and black population in key states like Florida and Ohio could have shifted the entire election her way. So is it the fault of black voters that Clinton didn't win? Or is it the fault of Clinton, who had ample time to create a black agenda that would have led to a higher black turnout? 
Typically, black voters have been pushed Democrat because the Republican is more racist. But that's not enough motivation to vote as the masses of the black community don't see much of a change regardless of which political party is in power. So if you're upset that Clinton didn't win, be upset with her, not the people whose vote she failed to gain. And often, the black community is pushed to vote for the better of the whole country. People will say, well, this is president now, so that's worse for everybody, especially the black community. To that, I say, you have some nerve asking the population of people who were once slaves and built this country to continue to put our own interests in the backseat for the betterment of the country as a whole. The time is long overdue for us to prioritize our own advancement before anything else. During the last election, you probably heard often the phrase, the lesser of two evils. Well, that's a phrase the black community knows too well. We should no longer vote for the lesser of two evils, but for the good. Rather than vote for the party that tweets that justice must be served when a woman like Breonna Taylor is murdered, we must force that party or any other to make justice happen when we're murdered. The bar is way too low to get our vote, and as low as it is, it's no wonder why our demands aren't met. Now moving on to the second pillar of black nationalism, economics. Black nationalism only means that we should own and operate and control the economy of our community. You would never find, you can't open up a black store in a white community. White man won't even patronize you. And he's not wrong. He's in, he got sense enough to look out for himself. And you, you who don't have sense enough to look out for yourself. The white man, the white man is too intelligent to let someone else come and gain control of the economy of his community. But you will let anybody come in and control the economy of your community. Control the housing, control the education, control the jobs, control the businesses uh, under the pretext that you want to integrate. No, you're out of your mind. The political, the economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that we have to become involved in a program of re-education to educate our people into the importance of knowing that when you spend your dollar out of the community in which you live, the community uh, in which you spend your money becomes richer and richer, the community out of which you take your money becomes poorer and poorer. And because these Negroes who have been misled, misguided, are breaking their necks to take their money and spend it with the man. The man is becoming richer and richer, and you're becoming poorer and poorer. And then what happens? The community in which you live becomes a slum. It becomes a ghetto. The conditions become run down. And then you have the audacity to, com to complain about poor housing in a run-down community. Why, you run it down yourself when you take your dollar out. And you and I are in a double trap because not only do we lose by taking our money someplace else and spending it, when we try and spend it in our own community, we're trapped because we haven't had sense enough to set up stores and control the businesses of our community. The man who's controlling the stores in our community is a man who doesn't look like we do. He's a man who doesn't even live in the community. So you and I, even when we try and spend our money in the block where we live or the area where we live, we're spending it with a man who, when the sun goes down, takes that basket full of money in another part of the town. Black nationalist economics may sound radical coming from Malcolm, but roughly three years later, 
the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would say almost the same thing. And not only that, we've got to strengthen black institutions. I call upon you to take your money out of the banks downtown and deposit your money in Tri-State Bank. We want a bank-in movement in Memphis. Go by the Savings and Loan Association. I'm not asking you something that we don't do ourselves in SCLC. Judge Hooks and others will tell you that we have an account here in the Savings and Loan Association from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We are telling you to follow what we are doing. Put your money there. You have six or seven black insurance companies here in the city of Memphis. Take out your insurance now. We want to have an insurance in. Now, these are some practical things that we can do. We begin the process of building a great economic base. And at the same time, we are putting pressure where it really hurts. I ask you to follow through here. You see, Malcolm and Martin, at the time of their deaths, had very similar political and economic philosophies. African-American scholar and teacher Peneli Joseph has even written a book titled The Sword and the Shield about Malcolm X and MLK's political growth and how that growth was in the same direction with Malcolm perhaps looking beyond the gains that can be had from a sit-in. Malcolm criticized the sit-ins and even the March on Washington itself, saying that the movements have been weakened by white involvement the same way a cup of coffee can go from energizing you to lulling you to sleep by adding too much milk. Malcolm felt that Martin's methods would lead only to more pain within the black community and no tangible gains. Though gains have come from the work of MLK through the civil rights bills, the same issues, poverty, unequal access to education, housing, and jobs still persist to this very day. It's not so good to refer to what you're going to do as a sit-in. That right there castrates you. Right there it brings you down. What, what goes with it? What Think of the image of a someone sitting. An old woman can sit. An old man can sit. A chump can sit. A coward can sit. Anything can sit. Well, you and I have been sitting long enough, and it's time today for us to start doing some standing and some fighting to back that up. When we look at other parts of this earth upon which we live, we find that black, brown, red, and yellow people in Africa and Asia are getting their independence. They're not getting it by singing, we shall overcome. No, they're getting it through nationalism. It is nationalism that brought about the independence of the people in Asia. Every nation in Asia gained its independence through the philosophy of nationalism. Every nation on the African continent that has gotten its independence brought it about through the philosophy of nationalism. And it will take black nationalism that to bring about the freedom of 22 million Afro-Americans here in this country where we have suffered colonialism for the past 400 years. Now, Malcolm's criticisms would sting even more if 
Years later, MLK didn't come around to Malcolm's way of looking at the gains of the civil rights movement. Beyond the integration of lunch counters and the outlawing of social and outright racism, structural racism was still allowed to exist as to uproot that may have been a bit more expensive. There's brothers, I think the biggest problem now is that we got our gains over the last 12 years at bargain rates, so to speak. It uh, didn't cost the nation anything. In fact, it helped the economic side of the nation to integrate lunch counters and public accommodations. It didn't cost the nation anything uh, to get uh, the right to vote established. And now we are confronting issues that cannot be solved without costing the nation billions of dollars. Now, I think this is where we're getting our greatest resistance. They may put it on many other things, but we can't get rid of slums and poverty without it costing the nation something. Both Malcolm and Martin traveled throughout Africa and Ghana, the first nation in Africa to gain its independence in particular. Malcolm, however, would be the only one of the two to claim himself as a Pan-African. Pan-Africanism is the principle or advocacy of the political union of all the indigenous inhabitants of Africa. Shortly before his assassination, Malcolm would explain the importance of a strong Africa and worldwide African solidarity. The organization of Afro-American unity sees the only hope uh, for the black man in America uh, in a strong Africa and, and the necessity of the Afro-American becoming uh, inseparably linked with the uh, overall program that's, that's existing on the African continent. The two problems must, go, must be solved together, and the two forces must go forward together. And so the Organization of Afro-American Unity has a program to link the Afro-Americans with the Africans and the Africans with the Afro-Americans. When I say Afro-Americans, I mean those throughout the entire Western Hemisphere. This is our only hope. Our hope is in a strong Africa. And when Africa is strong, our position in America will be one of respect. But if Africa is weak, we will never be in a position of respect in America. I, they, they used to have a saying that one doesn't have a Chinaman's chance. But they don't say that anymore. They used that expression back when China was weak. But now since uh, Mao Zedong has been successful in making China a strong country, uh, uh, the Chinese have more chance than anybody else. So this saying has become outdated. Well, just as it took a strong China to give a Chinese person respect wherever that Chinese person is found on this earth, uh, when we get a strong Africa, uh, the person of African origin or African ancestry will be respected any place on this earth, even in America. But he will not be respected in America until Africa is strong, just as the Chinaman wasn't respected abroad until China became strong. To bring things back to the domestic level, Malcolm did say that all have a part to play in the building of an equal and just America. In the autobiography of Malcolm X, Malcolm tells a story about a white girl who ran up to him and asked him what she could do as a well-meaning white person to further his cause. Malcolm replied a simple nothing and went on about his day. Later in his life, Malcolm reflected on that moment and admitted that he regretted what he said to that white girl. Malcolm believed that whites had a place in the movement, but just not alongside blacks. The whites should focus on fighting racism and uprooting it in their communities and their families. The work should be done separate from blacks, but with the same goal in mind, a more fair and just America. What I'm about to read is words from Malcolm's autobiography as he reflected on that encounter with the white girl. 
When I say that here now, it makes me think about that little co-ed I told you about. The one who flew from her New England college down to New York and came up to me in the Nation of Islam's restaurant in Harlem. And I told her that there was nothing she could do. I regret that I told her that. I wish that now I knew her name or where I could telephone her or write to her and tell her what I tell white people now when they present themselves as being sincere and ask me, one way or another, the same thing that she asked. The first thing I tell them is that at least where my own particular black nationalist organization, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, is concerned, they can't join us. I have these very deep feelings that white people who want to join black organizations are really taking the escapist way to salve their conscience. By visibly hovering near us, they are proving that they are with us. But the hard truth is, this isn't helping to solve America's racist problem. The Negroes aren't the racists. Where the really sincere white people have got to do their proving of themselves is not among the black victims, but out on the battle lines of where America's racism really is. And that's in their own home communities. America's racism is among their own fellow whites. That's where the sincere whites who really mean to accomplish something have got to get to work. Throughout his last 10 or so years, Malcolm was conscious of his being followed and monitored by the FBI and CIA. When he met Martin Luther King Jr., he even joked to Martin that Martin would now begin to be followed as well. But little did he know, Martin had already been followed for as long as he had. Malcolm was conscious of his new rhetoric's disruption of the image of him in the U.S. Malcolm's new approach was certainly more approachable to blacks and whites alike, and like Dr. King, he posed a threat to the white supremacist imperialist structure of the United States. This, Malcolm was aware, would probably lead to his assassination. The convenient explanation of Malcolm's murder, at least to the general public, would be he died due to the hate his rhetoric produced. To that, I would say, well then, what of Martin's assassination? In the autobiography, Malcolm ponders how both civil rights leaders will meet their end. Sometimes I have dared to dream to myself that one day, history may even say that my voice, which disturbed the white man's smugness and his arrogance and his complacency, that my voice helped to save America from a grave, possibly even a fatal catastrophe. The goal has always been the same, with the approaches to it as different as mine and Dr. Martin Luther King's nonviolent marching, which dramatizes the brutality and the evil of the white man against defenseless blacks. And in the racial climate of this country today, it is anybody's guess which of the quote-unquote extremes in approach to the black man's problems might personally meet a fatal catastrophe first. Nonviolent Dr. King or so-called violent me. I won't dive too much into Malcolm's murder as there's a whole Netflix documentary series that handles that. Rather, I will ask you why Malcolm's image is what it is in the general public. Is it more convenient to deem him an irresponsible man that was full of hatred and wanted white folks killed? Would to have taught and told the truth about Malcolm lead more young black children all over the world to embrace ideas such as black nationalism and pan-Africanism? Who would gain from that and who would lose? Like Martin, I believe the image of Malcolm is what it is because it's the easiest way to place him in history from the standpoint of a colonizer. The civil rights movement's face would become the ultimate pacifist Martin Luther King, and the focus would be when he was at his most idealistic and optimistic of America's future, and not when he came to terms with the fact that America's racism is as deeply woven into the country as the threads of its flag. To unweave this racism would be to radically change what America is.
To end today's episode, I will read to you more words from Malcolm himself. I know too that I could suddenly die at the hands of some white racist, or I could die at the hands of some Negro hired by the white man, or it could be some brainwashed Negro acting on his own idea that by eliminating me, he'd be helping out the white man because I talk about the white man the way I do. Anyway, now each day I live as if I am already dead, and I tell you what I would like for you to do. When I am dead, I say it that way because from the things I know, I do not expect to live long enough to read this book in its finished form. I want you to just watch and see if I'm not right in what I say, that the white man in his press is going to identify me with hate. He will make use of me dead as he made use of me alive as a convenient symbol of hatred. And that will help him to escape facing the truth that all I have been doing is holding up a mirror to reflect, to show the history of unspeakable crimes that his race has committed against my race. You watch. I will be labeled as, at best, an irresponsible black man. I've always felt about this accusation that the black leader, whom white men consider to be responsible, is invariably the black leader who never gets any results. You only get action as a black man if you are regarded by the white man as irresponsible. In fact, this much I had learned when I was just a little boy. And since I've been some kind of a leader of black people here in the racist society of America, I've been more reassured each time the white man resisted me or attacked me harder, because each time made me more certain that I was on the right track in the American black man's best interest. The racist white man's opposition automatically made me know that I did offer the black man something worthwhile. Yes, I have cherished my demagogue role. I know that societies have often killed the people who have helped to change those societies. And if I can die having brought any light, having exposed any meaningful truth that will help to destroy the racist cancer that is malignant in the body of America, then all of the credit is due to Allah. Only the mistakes have been mine. Y'all know the drill. You can go to bonos.com for the full versions of all audio clips used in this episode. That's B-A-U-K-N-O-W-S.com. And as is the case with all episodes, I'm welcoming opinions, questions, concerns, whatever. Just use the voice memo feature on your phone and record what you have to say. There's no time limit. Feel free to give shout outs where necessary. And bonus episodes will come out sporadically addressing these thoughts from the people. Just email your voice memo to thesoapboxpod at gmail.com. That's the soapbox pod at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Bonos, that's at B A U K N O W S, or on Twitter at Baudelaire, that's B A U D E L A I R E. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening to The Soapbox. Let's go.